Good evening, and welcome to this Outbeat Extra, a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with MakingGayHistory.com. I'm Greg Moralia. And I'm Eric Marcus, host of the Making Gay History podcast. The June 1969 riots at New York's Stonewall Inn are often described as the start of the modern LGBTQ civil rights movement. But our history as a community and a movement started way before those explosive summer nights 50 years ago. This year on Outbeat Extra, I'm going to share with you some of the archival interviews I recorded with people who changed the world. Their stories and their work are mostly absent from the history books, but they contributed to the movement that got us to where we are today, in ways you might know about, but probably don't. And their experiences and recollections take my breath away. And mine as well. We're thrilled to be partnering with Eric Marcus and making gay history. Eric is an accomplished author with several gay history books and biographies to his credits. He's the founder of the Making Gay History podcast. So stay with us. The first interview is coming up next, right after your Outbeat Radio News for this Sunday, March 31st, 2019. This is Greg Moralia with your Outbeat Radio News for the week of March 31st, 2019. In New Mexico, San Antonio City Council members voted 6-4 to four against allowing Chick-fil-A to open a franchise at a local airport after it was revealed that the Chick-fil-A company has continued to pour millions of dollars into anti-LGBTQ groups. District 1 City Councilman Robert Trevino said after the vote, quote, With this decision, the City Council reaffirmed the work our city has done to become a champion of equality and inclusion, end quote. Trevino made the motion to deny the fast food chicken sandwich company the lucrative spot in the airport concession. Chick-fil-A responded in a statement by saying it was the first they'd heard of this decision and it was disappointing. They indicated they would have liked to have had a dialogue with the city council before the decision was made. Seven years ago, Chick-fil-A's record of donating to anti-LGBTQ organizations came to light. The fast food chain is donated to the Family Research Council and the conversion therapy group known as Exodus International. CEO Dan Cathy told the newspaper that the company was guilty as charged of making anti-LGBTQ donations and said that marriage equality proponents, quote, have the audacity to define what marriage is about, end quote, and that we were, quote, inviting God's judgment on our nation, end quote. And here in California, police are searching for an unidentified man who shot two people outside the popular Palm Springs gay bar, Toucans. The shooting happened just after 2 a.m. this last Monday. Neither victim's wounds are life-threatening, and police say the incident started inside the bar when two people got in an argument and were thrown out of the establishment. Authorities haven't released complete details yet, but said someone fired two rounds into the parking lot, striking one person outside and one person inside the bar. Both victims were hit in the lower parts of their body. The shooter is described as a Hispanic male in his late 20s or 30s. He was wearing a black hoodie and a black hat. And if you happen to be in Palm Springs and saw anything, Palm Springs Police Department would like to talk with you. And in San Francisco last week, the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus announced that Emmy and Tony Award winner Kristen Chenoweth will be honored with this year's Vanguard Award and that Olympic skater Adam Rippon with the Trailblazer Award at this year's annual Crescendo Gala being held on April 27th. Both Chenoweth and Rippon are being recognized for their voices as agents of change and their commitment to uplift and empower the LGBTQ community. And finally, here locally, be sure to catch Outbeat host Diana Grayer's new play, When the Bud Blooms. This play is about a young woman who can't get off her couch because of rejection. 
and it takes her mother and three best friends to rally around her and get her back on track. There will be lots of laughs and maybe some tears while the characters explore gender identity, sexual orientation, and the value of having a support system. When the Bud Blooms will be performed in Katadi at the Congregation near Shalom on April 6th and 7th. Tickets are $20 in advance, $25 at the door, and you can learn more at dianagrayer.com. For Outbeat Radio News, I'm Greg Moralia. I'm Eric Marcus, and this is Making Gay History. If you've listened to our first three seasons, you know what to expect from a Making Gay History episode. We explore LGBTQ history guided by the voices of the people who lived it. I'm afraid that's not going to be possible this week. You see, I'd like to share with you the story of Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld, the founder of the world's first gay rights movement, who, more than a century ago, put his life on the line to stand up for LGBTQ people. Hirschfeld said, quote, Soon the day will come when science will win victory over error, justice a victory over injustice, and human love a victory over human hatred and ignorance. And the reason I read that quote aloud, rather than just playing you archival tape, is because all recordings of Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld's voice have been lost. But by following his words and his work, we're going to tell you his story. This past spring, I traveled to Germany. I hope to track down some little-known pieces of LGBTQ history, at least little-known to me, and to meet some of the history detectives working to reconstruct a scattered legacy. So here's the scene. Berlin, May 2018. I'm in Charlottenburg, an upscale neighborhood in the western part of the city. I'm with a group of scholars, researchers, and relatives of Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld. We've come together to honor the 150th anniversary of his birth. Here, in front of where Hirschfeld once lived, a monument now stands. It's a bronze pillar topped with Magnus Hirschfeld's unmistakable face, bespectacled with a bushy mustache, more reminiscent of a favorite uncle than a dangerous radical. But make no mistake... Hirschfeld's life and work were revolutionary. Ralph Dosa, historian and director of the Magnus Hirschfeld Society, steps forward and lays a wreath at the foot of the monument. Magnus Hirschfeld was born in 1868 into a Jewish family in a town in the Prussian Empire that's now part of Poland. He studied to become a physician and eventually moved to Berlin. When news of Oscar Wilde's trial and imprisonment reached Germany, Hirschfeld was outraged. This was part of what inspired him to blaze a trail as a pioneering sexologist and gay rights champion. In 1897, when he was 29 years old, he founded the, um, I'm going to need some help with my German here. The Wissenschaftliche Humanitäres Komitee. Or, as it's known in English, the Scientific Humanitarian Committee. And that's where it all began, the first gay rights movement in the world. Hirschfeld was gay, but closeted. That's just how it was. At the time, homosexual acts between men were illegal under paragraph 175 of German law, punishable by imprisonment. 
Hirschfeld and his newly founded committee got to work lobbying for paragraph 175 to be repealed. His aim is to decriminalize male homosexuality, but also to combat anti-homosexual prejudice more generally. This is Dagmar Herzog, distinguished professor at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York, and best known for her work on the history of sexuality. So he runs a petition campaign, which gets thousands of signatures from prominent politicians, medical doctors, religious leaders. He also gives 3,000 public lectures to all manner of audiences. He starts a sexual medical journal in 1899 called the Yearbook for Sexual Intermediaries, which is highly respected among medical doctors. Establishing himself as an expert on sexuality, frequently giving evidence in court, Hirschfeld argued that homosexuality was inborn, natural, and should not be punished. Here's Reiner Hearn, a senior lecturer specializing in the history of sexology. He's spent the last 30 years researching the work of Magnus Hirschfeld. He used his function as an expert widely, and he, he really he was so clever in doing that. His enemies say raving mad because the courts believed Hirschfeld. <laughs> Hirschfeld's fame as an expert turned to notoriety when he was drawn into Germany's biggest gay scandal. The Emperor Wilhelm II's closest confidant was accused of having an affair with a high-ranking general, sparking a scandal with wide-reaching political implications that set the stage for the First World War. Known as the Eulenburg Affair, it sprawled over three years of courts-martial, libel trials, suicides, blackmail, and imperial intrigue. For three years, it was discussed in the German newspapers whether homosexuality is dangerous, whether it's natural, whether it should be punished, um, how it affected the emperor. And so this went back and forth and back and forth. Dr. Kevin Clark of Berlin's Schwulis Museum, which roughly translates to the Fag Museum. And Hirschfeld was called as a, as a witness or as an expert to talk about this. But because he became so famous because of those statements, uh, one of the big cabaretiers, you know, pop singers of the time, wrote the Hirschfeld lied, the Hirschfeld song. The Hirschfeld lied, and it's by Otto Reuter. He's a very famous singer in that time. Watch out, Hirschfeld's coming, and he will see homosexuality everywhere. So beforehand, you had two dogs just walking down the road, but now, you know, when they sniff each other's butts, they have to watch out, because when Hirschfeld comes, he'll say, oh, they're perverts. Two men who were just, you know, supposedly regular friends who like to hug each other and go out together and have fun. But now, you know, when Hirschfeld comes around the corner, they immediately start kissing uh, their girlfriends or wives just to erase all possible evidence that they could be gay. It's quite a funny lyric and, and very typical, of course, for its time. But the times were changing. After the First World War, the liberal atmosphere of the Weimar Republic ushered in an era of relative freedom in Berlin. By 1919, Hirschfeld had met one of the loves of his life, Karl Giese, and had helped create the world's first film dealing with homosexuality. I'm going to need some help with my German again. The film was... Anders als die anderen. Or, in English, different from the others. And I'm going to need even more help, because different from the others was a silent movie. 
So with a little help from Dagmar Herzog, Reiner Hearn, and Rolf Dosa, here's Different From The Others. It's a, a love story between two musicians, two violinists, a teacher and a student. Different From The Others is a tragic gay love story, a trope that, by the way, Hollywood's taken a hundred years to get over. In fact, the movie begins with the main character reading obituaries in the newspaper, which in veiled language are indicating that these were all men accused of homosexuality who had suicided. So that is the framing narrative. An aspiring musician and his talented concert violinist teacher fall in love. The relationship is discovered and the couple is blackmailed. Which was one of the major dramas in Berlin at that time. There were many male prostitutes who made their living by blackmailing adult men who were seeking homosexual acts. As the blackmail pressure mounts, the young musician flees and the older violinist is heartbroken. The blackmailer is relentless. The violinist pays him off, but the blackmailer vows to report him to the police. When the blackmailer is arrested, he accuses the violinist under paragraph 175, and they both end up in court together. And in the midst of it all, Hirschfeld, who is the scriptwriter for the movie, is also one of the characters in the movie. He is the good doctor who offers wonderfully affirming um, comments that same-sex love is a beautiful thing. Hirschfeld, appearing as himself as an expert witness, pleads in court on the violinist's behalf. The violinist is convicted, but given a light sentence, just a week in prison. But the scandal has ruined him. He is shunned, and his concert tour is canceled. Inconsolable, he takes his own life. The young musician hears of his former lover's death and is devastated. He too contemplates killing himself. But Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld appears again. And then Hirschfeld says, don't do it. You have another task. You have to encourage future generations that they don't suffer the same destiny as your lover did. Hirschfeld says, what matters now is to restore honor and justice to the many thousands before us, with us, and after us, through knowledge to justice. In a way, it's, it's tragic, maybe you can say it's kitschy, uh, but uh, at the end, Magnus Hirschfeld sent a message to the future. Yes. Yes, he did. And, and his message was not destroyed. No. Hirschfeld was the expert on homosexuality, and he was a gay man. But as Rolf Dosa, director of the Magnus Hirschfeld Society, says, only one of those things was a public matter. So he himself never came out in a way we would. So you, you'll never find in his publications uh, the word, I am a homosexual. He just led his life there. He led his life. He lived together with his boyfriend. Mm-hmm. Everyone knew uh, if everyone wanted to know. It wasn't spoken. It wasn't spoken. That tentative openness was a feature of gay life in Berlin at the time. While homosexuality remained illegal, dozens of gay clubs were open and thriving. In 1920, Kurt Schwabach and Misha Spoliansky wrote The Lavender Song, or Das Lila Lied. Here's Merrick Weber's recording of it. Mm-hmm. 
he's singing, we are just different from the others who are being loved only in lockstep of morality. The song became a gay anthem and was performed in the cabaret clubs around Berlin. Dagmar Herzog again. And it's a city that sort of celebrates every possible predilection. I mean, the crucial thing about Berlin in the Weimar years is not the pervasiveness of um, people who are comfortable with their homosexuality and acting on it. It's the visibility. It's the proud visibility um, and the glamour and the fun of it. And that already triggers conservative responses, even before the Nazis come to power, of two varieties, Christian conservative on the one hand and right-wing thuggish Nazi on the other. While the backlash built in the background, in the middle of gay Berlin, literally the middle, Hirschfeld's Institute opened its doors in 1919 on the edge of Berlin Central Park. You have to imagine this building. It's this gorgeous villa on the northern edge of the Tiergarten Park. And the Tiergarten Park also had cruising areas for gay men, so there's kind of a logic to that location, but it's also just this incredibly sumptuous place. The whole complex ends up having about 50 rooms. I mean, it's a huge thing. There's a library with, I don't know, by the end, 20,000 volumes. Like, there's an archive, 35,000 photographs of every imaginable sexual predilection and possible way of being in gender expression terms. There's an enormous amount of information about sexuality being collected there. There's a lecture hall. There's a question box where people can go and put their little questions. And it turns out that he was also a huge resource for heterosexuals. In fact, the majority of the questions end up being about contraception. And he was a major advocate for uh, premarital heterosexuality as completely morally okay. He was there. He was an advocate for a um, morality of consent. You know, the idea that consent is sexy was his concept already then. (laughs) He was an advocate for the idea that the state should get out of the private business of the bedroom. And he defended everybody's sexual rights, and he advocated contraception. So all those things made him a real magnet for people who were interested in having happier sex lives. Hirschfeld's Institute was also a magnet for visits from people such as Christopher Isherwood, W.H. Auden, and Lily Elba, the trans woman who was immortalized in the film The Danish Girl. What we would now call gender alignment or gender confirmation surgery, some of the very earliest surgeries of that kind were conducted in Hirschfeld's Institute. He didn't do the cutting himself or the sewing, but he had doctors there doing it, and from 1920 on. But Hirschfeld's profile and his beliefs made him a prime target. He is the preferred hate object for the right wing, and uh, especially then for the Nazis. He is constantly reading slander. You know, you think you're dealing with aggression on the internet now, but I mean, every morning he woke up and there was nasty, crappy, disgusting, anti-Semitic stuff above all being said against him. 1920, he's at a lecture in Munich and right-wing thugs beat him up and leave him for dead on the street. He's bleeding and then he's reading his obituary the next morning and luckily he's still alive. But then there are many right-wing venues that say, oh, we're really sorry that this poisoner of the folk hasn't died already. Despite the threats, the violence, and the slander, Hirschfeld persisted. Through the 1920s, his institute grew. And in the late 1920s, Hirschfeld organized the first of several international congresses for sexual reform. The speakers were a laundry list of leaders in the nascent gay rights movements, the fight for women's rights, and sexual science. In 1931, while Dr. Hirschfeld was on a tour of the U.S., the Hearst newspaper chain nicknamed him the Einstein of Sex. In Berlin... The Nazis set their sights on Hirschfeld early in their reign of terror. He posed a triple threat as a gay Jewish socialist. 
As far back as 1920, Hitler had singled out Hirschfeld, calling him Jewish swine. When the Nazis swept to power in 1933, Hirschfeld's library at the Institute for Sexual Science was their first target for book burnings. On the night of May 6th, Nazi youth ransacked the Institute. Most of the contents of the Institute were destroyed or stolen, and thousands of books were seized. Four nights later, stacks of volumes from Hirschfeld's library went up in flames on the open plots. The bust of Hirschfeld that had greeted visitors to the Institute was tossed on the fire, too. But Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld wasn't in Berlin. He was in Paris, where a few days later, he watched his life's work reduced to ashes. He wrote that he saw the destruction of the Institute with his own eyes on a newsreel in Paris. By this time, Dr. Hirschfeld had been living out of suitcases for years. He had left Germany for a world tour in 1930. Along the way, he'd met the second love of his life, Li Shu Tong. And for a while, the three of them, Lee, Carl Giese, and Dr. Hirschfeld, lived together in a grand apartment on the Avenue Charles Floquet in Paris. But Dr. Hirschfeld's health was fading, and in 1934, he moved to the sunnier, warmer climes of Nice. The following March, Hirschfeld named his two lovers, Li Shutong and Carl Giese, as his sole heirs. On May 14, 1935, Dr. Hirschfeld spent the morning with a friend and his great-nephew. It was his 67th birthday. They opened birthday letters together, then went for a walk and had lunch. Upon their return, Hirschfeld collapsed in the doorway to his apartment building. They somehow managed to carry him up the stairs to his apartment on the third floor, where he died. Dagmar Herzog again. It's pretty clear that he dies of a heart attack, and you could say of a broken heart. It had been two years since the Nazis destroyed his institute. It actually took some time, um, at least 20 to 30 years after the Second World War, that people began to commemorate Magnus Hirschfeld. He was completely forgotten. Dr. Daniel Baranowski is from the Magnus Hirschfeld Federal Foundation, an anti-discrimination organization founded by the German government. The very good thing that the Magnus Hirschfeld Gesellschaft, the Magnus Hirschfeld Society did, is that they began at the end of the 1970s to do research on him and collect materials, archival materials. When we started our work, everyone said, well, that will be in vain. There's nothing left. The Nazis destroyed everything. Everything was burned. There's no one left who can tell you anything. And, uh, well, that turned out uh, to be wrong. That's Rolf Dosa again, the director of the Magnus Hirschfeld Society. He's devoted almost 50 years to researching Hirschfeld's life and work. Rolf and his colleagues have worked tirelessly to find the scattered remnants of Hirschfeld's legacy, some of which was lost forever following the suicide of Karl Giese in 1938 and the subsequent deportation and murder of his heir by the Nazis. For Ralph Dosa, this detective work has included early mornings, late-night internet sessions, messages that traveled through time, and the serendipity of a Canadian pack rat who stumbled upon history at the bottom of a garbage chute. That self-described pack rat is Adam Smith of Vancouver, British Columbia. I had a rather unusual job at the building I used to live in. It was my responsibility to drive a dumpster from the bottom of a parking garage out to the back of the building uh, every week. So one day I open the door and I walk into this small you know, airless, windowless room with a garbage dumpster in it and I find a collection of leather suitcases, beautiful old leather suitcases. 
And then I opened up one suitcase, and amongst the other things in it was a, a leather box. I lifted the lid and saw something I'd never seen before, but I knew exactly what it was the moment I looked at it. The, the mask felt smooth and cool, um, kind of everything you, you, you might imagine if you let your imagination run a little wild on the, the notion of a death mask. Um, I didn't know who Hirschfeld was. I had no idea who, who this person was or why these things ended up in, in uh, the basement of a parking garage in Vancouver, Canada. At the time, I think the feeling that was overwhelming was just curiosity more than anything else and a, a, this kind of a sense of distant drama. And I carried this one suitcase packed full of stuff with me to Toronto when I moved there. And it went into the storage room in Toronto and it sat there for many, many years. One drunken night when I was doing some research on the internet, just searching for the name of Magnus Hirschfeld, and I pushed wrong buttons and... Uh, the result was that I got a very oldest entry was on top. So uh, that's not the way you use the internet normally. So I think it was, I think it was 1993 and this was before the World Wide Web, but I was on the internet at that point. Um, and there was a thing called Usenet News, which was kind of a precursor to forums. Um, so I posted a message saying, I'm looking for information about Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld. Can anybody tell me who he is? I have some things that may be significant about him. And then there was a name signed by Adam Smith. At the end of that night, I uh, found an email that might uh, lead to this person. And I sent a question uh, to that address. So one day, and I believe it was around 2003, uh, I got an email from somebody in Germany um, quoting my original post some, what was it, 10 years previous, uh, saying, are you, know, are you Adam Smith? Did you post this to the internet? I replied back. 10 minutes later, I had an answer saying, yes, that was me. And everything you are looking for is still sitting in my attic. I'll send you photographs tomorrow. <laughs> I had a very sleepless night. And actually, the funny thing was, the next day was my birthday, and I had invited some friends from the Red Society. So I, I got the big birthday present just uh, the night before. Ralph Joseph flies to Canada a few months later to collect the suitcase. Sitting in Adam Smith's Toronto living room, Ralph takes several deep breaths, and with eyes as wide as a five-year-old on Christmas morning, he hesitantly flicks open the latches and lifts the lid. Unlike a five-year-old on Christmas morning, Ralph takes his time. He carefully picks up and examines the contents of the suitcase one by one, as though he can hardly believe they're real. Papers, notebooks, letters, and a leather box. He opens it. At last, Ralph Dosa comes face to face with Magnus Hirschfeld as he holds his death mask in his hands. The suitcase was one of several that had belonged to Li Shutong. In the 48 years after Hirschfeld died, Li had carried his lover's death mask, journals, books, papers, and last testament with him from France to Switzerland to Hong Kong, and finally to Vancouver, Canada, where Li died in 1993. Li's family had kept some of the books and papers but tossed the rest. That's how Adam Smith came across them in the suitcase when he was collecting the trash. Today, the suitcase is in the Hirschfeld Society's office in Berlin. 
After decades of painstaking work, some of Hirschfeld's scattered belongings came home. And last May, his far-flung family, also decimated and scattered by the Nazis, came together in Berlin as well. Und heute sagen wir noch, wir sollen uns fügen, begnügen, wir können uns nicht fügen. That's Vivian Connor singing at the closing of a huge celebration I attended last May at Berlin's House of World Cultures Auditorium, which is just steps away from where Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute once stood. Hirschfeld's relatives from Australia, the U.S., and Israel were among those singing along to this popular German birthday song on what would have been Uncle Magnus's 150th birthday. Happy birthday, Mr. Hirschfeld! I have to wonder what Dr. Hirschfeld would think about the current state of the movement he founded. So much of what he fought for has come to pass, but it took time, a long time. As Dagmar Herzog said to me, movements are made up of moments, and those moments can be spread over decades, even centuries. Paragraph 175 wasn't repealed until 1994. Same-sex marriage only became legal in Germany in 2017. As Hirschfeld witnessed, progress is not guaranteed. The backlash can be swift and brutal. The battle for justice that Hirschfeld waged, that we are fighting now, has been fought before and will be fought again and again. Our hard-won rights are not written in stone, but our resolve can be. Hirschfeld's epitaph, etched into his headstone at Nice, repeats his guiding principle. Through science to justice. Or perhaps through radical social action, protest, organizing, and supporting communities of color, trans and non-binary folk, to justice. Oh, and vote. That too. Thanks, Eric. We're going to take a quick music break, and then Eric will be back with his next interview with Phyllis Lyons and Del Martin. Hello, darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again Because a vision softly creeping Left its seeds while I was sleeping And the vision that was planted in my brain Still remains within the sound In restless dreams I walked alone Narrow streets of cobblestone Neath the halo of a street lamp I turned my collar to the cold and dead When my eyes were stabbed by the flash of a Silent. 
was the Pentatonics with their version of The Sound of Silence. You're listening to KRCBFM Radio 91, and if you're just joining us, this is an outbeat extra and a celebration of the 50th anniversary of Stonewall with Making Gay History. I'm Greg Moralia. And I'm Eric Marcus, host of the Making Gay History podcast. Before we get started, I have a favor to ask. A little favor that could make a big difference to us. It would be great if you could spend a couple of short minutes filling out a survey for us. Learning more about you will help us make the best show possible. And it can help us when we ask funders for the support we need to make this podcast. I'd be so grateful if you could give us a moment of your time and go to makinggayhistory.com slash survey and answer a few questions to help us hone and fund Making Gay History. Got that? makinggayhistory.com slash survey. You're the best. Thanks. By the time I sat down to interview the dynamic duo Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin in 1989, I thought I knew a lot about them because of their decades-long and high-profile roles as LGBTQ civil rights activists. Phil and Del founded Daughters of Belitis in 1955, the first organization for lesbians. Their names and faces kept popping up in my research. Phyllis with her black ponytail, big glasses, and megawatt smile, Del with her round face, heavy-lidded eyes, and silver, close-cropped hair. From recorded interviews, I knew their voices, too. Phil's was full of smoke. Dell's was a smoother grade of gravel, the volume always kept on a whispery low. Phyllis and Dell found each other while working at the same magazine in Seattle in 1950. 
Three years later, on Valentine's Day, 1953, they moved into an apartment on Castro Street in San Francisco. The Castro was a very different neighborhood back then, working class, Catholic, very straight. While Phyllis and Dell had each other, they longed to find community. And that longing led them to plant the seeds of a national social movement. There's one thing you need to know before you hear Phyllis and Dell speak for themselves. I asked them a dumb question about their relationship based on a stereotype I'm not sure I even believed in. I still cringe when I hear myself asking them about their, quote, classic butch-femme relationship. Fortunately for me, Phyllis and Dell were tolerant of what I didn't know and were very patient in helping me understand what I needed to learn. So here's the scene. Across the kitchen table from me sit Phil and Dell. They look just like their pictures, maybe a bit older. Phyllis is 64, Dell is 68. I clip a microphone to each of their blouses and press record. Interview with Del Martin and Phyllis Lyon, Thursday, July 27, 1989. Tape 1, Side 1. So if you just introduce yourself by name. Okay, I'm Phyllis Lyon. And I'm Del Martin. Who knew about homosexuals? Um, even lesbian, we didn't know those terms. Um, so here you are feeling this, whatever it is, but you don't know even how to define it. You, so that was what was happening. Everybody thought, I am the only one. So it wasn't as if you could go to the library. Once you had the word, you could go to the library. Yeah, but they didn't have anything anyhow then. Then all you found out was that you were illegal, immoral, and sick. <laughs> so this was, this was hardly a superb foundation for the beginning of a massive nationwide gay rights movement. <laughs> well, not even for feeling good about yourself, <laughs> right? <laughs> I think the things that we were working on in the 50s and the Daughters of Belitis anyway was trying to build our self-esteem I mean, to begin to see that we were okay in spite of being faced with, as Phyllis said, being immoral, illegal, and sick. sick. I mean, that's heavy duty for a lot of people. And you had the uh, purges in you know, the State Department and government. And then there were the raids of the gay bars. There were the purges in the armed services. What was life like? For the two of you around when DOB started, uh, your relationship, uh, the dynamic of your relationship, I understand, was was the classic butch friend relationship. Um, oh, I don't know about classic. <laughs> if I stumble over words, please tell me. It's new stuff for me, too. I mean, for me, I should say not too. But. It didn't work for us, no matter how we tried. I mean, it was true that they all tended to light my cigarettes, okay? But uh, that was as butch as she got sometimes. <laughs> She doesn't drive, and I did. You know, she didn't drive the nails in, and I did. She didn't do any of these. I'm not at all mechanical. Butch things. <laughs> but, you're, but that's what you're supposed to. This is the relationship you thought you were supposed to have. Yeah, right. I remember thinking, well, now let's see. I gotta get up and get Dad's breakfast every morning because that's what Mother did for Dad, right? So I did that for a week. Forget it. <laughs> None of these things really worked for us, and I suspect that was true for most couples. Were there role models for you at all? Certainly there were no guys. No, well, see, I, yeah, and I didn't know really much of anything. I mean, I just had met this person three and a half years before, and she said she was a lesbian, and I thought that was the most fascinating thing I ever heard. 
And then when I thought about it, it explained a lot about the fact that I had been really attracted to women in high school and et cetera, et cetera, but I didn't, and still was, but I didn't really have a clue as to what that was all about. And we didn't know anybody, you know, and so we knew about the bars in North Beach, and we went down there. And we were very shy, and so we sort of Sat were more like tourists. Going to the bars and watching everybody and wondering <laughs> how we fit in. Um, anyway, uh, we fi- did meet a couple of men who lived around the corner gay from men. us, gay men. So we became friends with them. They were in a Butch family relationship. And, uh, <laughs> and Jerry was a bartender. And uh, Ricky was very offended. He used to. He used to dress in drag. He and I dress, used to dress alike sometimes. We'd go out Halloween and stuff like that. And uh, he stayed home. He didn't work, did he? I don't remember. So Jerry was supporting him, and he stayed home to care of the house and cat. And Jerry introduced us to this couple, lesbians. And they suggested getting together? To start this organization. They, well, yeah, Nani called. She called us NASA's if we wanted to get involved. And we thought, great, now we can meet some other lesbians. <laughs> that was our main focus. You, this was, you were not thinking, well, we're going to start a national meeting. Oh, uh, no. <laughs> we were just going to meet some lesbians. And start a social club. That's yeah. what they said. You wanna, I mean, it was a Sunday, September afternoon, and we were cleaning house. And where would we have gotten the idea about starting a national movement <laughs> in September of 1955? And, uh, and the idea was what? You know, to have a social club, a secret social club. Secret meaning secret membership, secret everything. Yeah. Nani was into a sort of a structure, you know. And, yeah. And she was also the one that came up with the name, Daughters of Bleeders. Because she had read, seen this book, um, and it was a long narrative, a lesbian poem. And... Um, Belitis was supposed to have lived at the time of Sappho. And it could appear like we were just like any other women's lodge. So you didn't think of naming yourselves the, the Lesbian Dancing Club? Or... <laughs> Not hardly. You know, it wasn't until 1964 that there was an organization that used the word homosexual, gay, or lesbian or something in it. And the idea was that by calling ourselves the Daughters of Belitis, and people would, lesbians would know what it meant. And uh, nobody else would. I don't think that was true of lesbians, because none of us, except Nani, had ever seen this poem. But uh, <laughs> Anyhow, that didn't occur to us then either, so. Something that started as a group, a social group of eight women, evolved. I'm trying to get a sense of this. Did you talk about the, the place of, of lesbians in the world, uh, the challenges of being gay, dealing with family? Uh, well, eventually, we talked about all of those things. <laughs> Mostly on a personal level. How do you deal with your family? How do you solve this problem or that? Or Should I tell my parents? How do I tell my parents? You hadn't told your parents. No. No. Not many people told their parents in those days. And um, one of the problems, too, if you were underage, parents would you know, take you to a shrink. Or they could have you institutionalized. And underage was under 21 in those yeah. days, too. A lot of women came to DOB who had been 
uh, either abandoned by their families or had been had electroshock therapy or had been thrown into mental institutions or who had escaped from mental institutions. <laughs> At some point, uh, you decided to go ahead with a more activist approach, and there were women who wanted the group to remain a social organization. What happened then? Well, of the eight of us, there was a split, four and four. And the four wanted strictly secret social club. And the other four was for branching out more. And so the four who wanted secret social club started another one. So And I, then the other two women that had been original founders moved to Reading. In the process of, of discussing and talking and so on, and, and over a period of time, though, I don't remember exactly. We said, all right, we would like to educate the public about the realities of lesbianism, only we didn't say it in that word, yeah. but the, about the truth about lesbianism. By this time, we had more members. Yeah. Yeah. Dozens? A hundred? Oh, no. no, we never got to a hundred. Um, probably a little over a dozen or 15 yeah, or something. Yeah, so, something like that. This, this organization was so fragile that Dell and I were like peer counselors to every member. And, it, and we'd stop and pick them up to bring them to the meetings. If anybody had a problem, we ran over to pat their heads. Um, <laughs> what made it so fragile? Well, well, there were so few of us, and, and so it was so scary. And the, and the times, there was nothing but fear out there. What were people fearful of? Of losing their jobs, of losing their jobs, losing, losing their, their families, families, losing their minds. <laughs> uh, Could they I mean, lose really? Their too? Could they be thrown out of their apartments? Sure, sure, sure. Could be thrown out of their apartments, and I think they had, they were. They could certainly lose their jobs, and they had. The thing I guess we stressed in the beginning was DOB was an alternative to the bars that were no. being raided. Bar people thought, you know, we, we were, were crazy. They thought, well, first, there were all kinds of rumors, right? DLB was for couples only. or, And then there was the one about we had orgies. And then, with the and others, then we, were we were communists, communists right? right? And uh, those are the three that come to mind. Yeah. Did they resent you because you were causing trouble or potentially were going to cause trouble for them? I don't think that was the Bardikes. That was the the... Upscale lesbians yeah. that uh, wished we'd shut up. I think there's still some of those around. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I mean, they had been happily living as two lesbian, two women together, et cetera, et cetera, and then all of a sudden, um, well, later, anyhow, there's publicity and people are talking about lesbians and they're saying there's two women living together and they're scared to death. Yeah, I remember there was a bar in the '60s in the Inner Sunset uh, called Thin Alley. And there were go-go girls. And we figured, you know, this place is going to get raided. Uh, it was packed. It was just packed, packed all the time. So we, was one time, I guess Phyllis was talking to this woman and said, she couldn't be involved with DOB. She was a teacher. I mean, they knew we're standing <laughs> and the go-go girls are go-go-going up here on the bar. Other, the place is packed. We're standing in the middle. And she's telling me this. Knowing who you are? Or? Yeah, we've been talking about DOB. I yeah. She's saying, oh, couldn't possibly. You know, it's, again, it's sort of like somebody might find out I'm a lesbian. Yeah. They're never going to find it out in this bar. <laughs> Nobody will ever know. But, but they felt safe in the bar, sense. but not... 
didn't make any didn't yeah. make any sense. Yeah. Was it frustrating for you at all? Yeah, it seemed rather frustrating. We got, it didn't sound very logical to us. We got very frustrated. On the other hand, you know, we also realized that people had to do things at their own pace and yeah. so on and so forth. You were already had contact at this point with Manashi. Yeah. yeah, we discovered them shortly after DLB got started, but not before, which everybody seems to think we came along as a women's auxiliary. Did you go to one of their meetings? Yeah. Yeah. Were you welcomed? Yeah, because they welcomed women. They had a couple of straight women that were working with them, mothers, somebody's mother. So was managing a, a help to, to DOB? I think it was a help to us in the sense that they were ahead of us, okay? So they had done things that we hadn't had yet to do. Like? <laughs> uh, well, like conferences and, mm -hmm. you know, stuff like that. And so we learned from their mistakes. They were helpful in that they had offices and they let us share a very tiny little office and have a desk or something uh, for a while. There were a couple of, who was it who told me? I think Dorwin Jones who said that he was an SOB. Yes. Mm -hmm. So there were uh, a son of believers. Son of believers. Mm -hmm. there were, so there were some early male members. They weren't really members. members they yeah. Were, they, they, we started see, out in 1960 when we had our first convention. And... We just thought it would be kicky to well, honor they, some of the men who had helped us. And and then also there was a little innuendo about SOBs because right. some of them really were, too. Uh, <laughs> some you, were really We got a lot of flack because we were, quote, unquote, a segregated organization. Yeah. You know, from the beginning, uh, the idea was to have an organization for women so they could dance together and be social and meet each other. and be safe and that kind of thing. So, you know, it was, didn't have anything to do with not liking men or anything like that. It was just this was the idea of the organization. Well, it became obvious in that uh, the concerns that gay men had in those days had to do with tea room entrapment, um, you know, changing the sex laws and, and, and stuff that really was all around sexual activity. And the concerns that lesbians had had to do more with civil stuff, had to do with loss of jobs, had to do with children, loss of children and, and dealing with Custody. children, had to do with, you know, maintaining relationships and stuff like that, didn't have to do with the fact that they were down in public toilets. It did seem like there were better ways that men could manage their penises than the way they were managing it. <laughs> come and gone over the years. That so I think at times we got a little disgusted with their toilet habits. Yeah, like, <laughs> or lack of toilet training. I think <laughs> yeah, lack of toilet training. Right, well, getting back to all the fears, you know, it was, I guess, in the 70s that we learned that DOB had been infiltrated by CIA and FBI and those. Yes, and they had reports on this and uh, like uh, one report was uh, when I made a, a reservation at the uh, Clark Hotel Clark Hotel in Los Angeles for about 14 for breakfast. Big deal. Big deal. We were looking to try Don't and you think interest that's women in a, in a DOB chapter in L.A. What year was this? It was in the sure. 50s. There was a lot of that going on and we found out that for the convention in New York, oh, somebody that. from Ohio had a report to the FBI that Doris Release was 
planning a convention in New York City in 64. Um, At the New York New, or Yorker New Yorker Hotel. Hotel. New Yorker, New Yorker Hotel. Yeah. And the FBI couldn't find us. They went to talk to people at New Yorker, and, and that, that deal had fallen through. And actually, where we held it was at the Barbizon Plaza. Plaza. And, and it was in the New York Times that time. That was, but the FBI hadn't found us. And I just loved that. 1989. Grand Marshals. <laughs> was this the first time you were Grand Marshals for the parade? Yeah. Well, well first one here. Looking back to your eight women sitting in a living room. <laughs> <laughs> Very frightening. Yeah. Um, you must have some thought. You must have just, you must marvel at the transformation. Well, we've been marveling at the transformation for quite a while. We have marveled at it so many times. Like, never in our wildest dreams could we have conceived of any of this when we were starting out with DOB, when we were trying to be very secretive and just to meet And people. very proper. I mean, you know, yeah. like... DOB was a good coming out place. And where women could get their act together and find out who they were and be able to talk to others and hash it out. We felt that people get themselves together and they can go out and cope with the world. <laughs> yeah, we were trying to help uh, lesbians find themselves, you know. I mean, you don't, you can't have a movement if you don't have people that see that they're worthwhile. <laughs> Phyllis Lyon and Del Martin's work didn't end with the Daughters of Belitis. They had a long career of activism that included their work with the National Organization for Women, the Alice B. Toklas Democratic Club, and they fought for the rights of senior citizens. In 1989, they joined Old Lesbians Organizing for Change, and in 1995, they were named delegates to the White House Conference on Aging. The two women were also outspoken in the fight for marriage equality, and when they had the chance to legally marry, they did. Twice. First, in 2004, when the then-mayor of San Francisco, Gavin Newsom, ordered that marriage licenses be granted to same-sex couples. The California Supreme Court closed that window after two months and voided the marriages. They tied the knot a second time on June 16, 2008, when the California Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was legal. Both times, Phyllis and Dell were the first couple in line to be married. Dell was actually married three times. Back when she was 19 years old, she had married a man and had a daughter, Kendra Mann. That marriage ended in divorce after four years. And given the times, Dell didn't even think to try to keep custody of her daughter. At Dell and Phil's second wedding, Kendra and her husband Eugene sat in the front row. Dell Martin, her full name, Dorothy Louise Taliaferro Martin, died on August 27, 2008, with her legal wife of two months, Phyllis Ann Lyon, at her side. She was 87. San Francisco's mayor ordered that the flags at City Hall be flown at half-mast in her honor. Phyllis still lives in the Noe Valley house she shared with Dell. Making Gay History is a team effort. Thank you to executive producer Sarah Birmingham and audio engineer Ann Pope. We had production assistance from Josh Gwynn. Our theme music was composed by Fritz Myers. 
Thank you also to our social media strategist, Will Coley, our webmaster, Jonathan Dozer-Ezel, researchers Bronwyn Pardis and Zachary Seltzer, and thank you to our intrepid photo editor, Michael Green. A very special thank you to our guardian angel, Jenna Weisberman. The Making Gay History podcast is a co-production of Pineapple Street Media with assistance from the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division and One Archives at the USC Libraries. I hope you've enjoyed hearing some of the people who are part of the Making Gay History archive. We have dozens more interviews, which you can listen to on our website, and we're working on a new season of episodes focusing on the Stonewall Uprising. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a single episode. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or just go to makinggayhistory.com. Thanks, Eric. What a treat it is to have you on the air with us sharing some of these priceless conversations. And there's a lot more to come. On each of the fifth Sundays in 2019, we're going to bring you an Outbeat Extra with Eric Marcus and conversations he's had with LGBTQ icons. People like Harry Hay, Marsha P. Johnson, Gene and Morty Manford, Frank Kameny, and many, many more. This year is an ideal time to learn more about LGBTQ history, and we hope you'll do it with us right here on Outbeat Radio. For now, that wraps up our hour. Look for the next Outbeat Extra on Sunday, June 30th. Outbeat Radio will be back next week with Living Proof with Sheridan Gold and Dr. Diana Grayer. That's at 8 p.m. and only here on KRCB-FM Radio 91. In the meantime, have a great week, and thanks for spending your Sunday night with us. Support for Outbeat Extra on KRCBFM comes from listeners and from Community Market, Sonoma County's only worker-run, not-for-profit, natural and organic foods grocery store. With a strict product policy and a 100% organic produce department, Community Market strives to carry wholesome, organic, and ethically produced food products. Community Market stores are located at 1899 Mendocino Avenue in Santa Rosa and 6762 Sebastopol Avenue in Sebastopol. More information is available at cmnaturalfoods.com. Listening to Radio 91 KRCB FM Windsor and K215 CQ Santa Rosa. It is 9 p.m. Stay with us. Afropop is next.